Before we begin this message, uh, I'd like uh, for you to uh, bow with me as we pray. Father in heaven, we thank you that you have given us this great message of the gospel and also the great message of health. We know that you came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. But you also promised that when you left after your resurrection that you would send your Holy Spirit. And we pray that each mind and each heart here today might be inclined to the full voice of your Spirit. And that also this voice might be inclined by your spirit to speak your words. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Our title of the um, entire series this uh, weekend is CPR. And uh, actually, uh, CPR stands for See if I can get my remote to work. The right hand, maybe top button. Still no, I'll try it again. And I'll try the right hand. That one worked, okay. Uh, CPR stands for Christ Patient Restorer. And of course, when we teach CPR in hospitals and other uh, clinics around the nation, uh, it's called basic life support training. And often the basic life support training is put on by an organization, most commonly called, does anyone know? Actually, it's the Red Cross that often puts on those CPR training uh, programs. And of course, the Red Cross gets its name really from Christ. Uh, the uh, patient restorer. And so today, uh, some of this might be a review because for some of you it might be basic life support training, but uh, all of us uh, that are involved in hospital training have to go through this uh, at least every year or two as a review and pass even the CPR aspect of things before we can take the advanced cardiac life support training or the ACLS, et cetera. And I've often wondered, uh, you know, after working in the ICU for uh, many years and running many codes, et cetera, uh, why the hospital continues to insist that I get these, these basic certificates, but every time I go back, I realize that actually it, it does have some helpful uh, components to it. Uh, this actual remote might be a challenge. I'm pressing the same button that worked a little bit ago. And, uh, I'd like to introduce uh, a couple of studies from the medical literature. This one was a 60-year uh, study. And whenever we're doing studies that, that span many decades, I'm very interested particularly in those. But this was a, a study that said religious commitment may help prevent physical and mental illness and aid recovery from illness. And uh, as mentioned, it was review of religion and health disease spanning 60 years. And uh, instead of Duke, that's done a lot of these studies, this study was done at Georgetown University. Here are some quotes from the study. Surveys of the US population during the past 60 years have established that religion holds a central place in the lives of many Americans. 95% of Americans believe in God. 
And actually, that may be more than what you think of, uh, particularly in this part of the country. Uh, but uh, when you average the entire country, it is 95% that at least uh, have a belief in God. More than 50% of patients state that they pray on a daily basis. Whoops, let's see if I can back up here. What, uh, well, is there a backup button, do you know, Skip? Uh, more than 40% attend church weekly. Again, you might not think that's uh, the case for the Californians. And it is less than that, of course, in California, but still more than you might think. 75% of people want their physician to consider spiritual issues in relation to their care. And that's without any attempt at trying to even bridge that. So just on a survey, 75% of patients uh, state that they want their physician to consider spiritual issues in relation to their care. And 50% want their physician to pray with them. And again, that's without a, uh, an introduction or a bridge. Uh, although I don't uh, pray with every patient on every uh, visit, uh, I have uh, yet in 21 years uh, actually been refused uh, to have a patient uh, uh, be prayed for uh, at the time that I'm there in the visit. And again, uh, uh, if I were to do it across the board, I'm sure I would be refused uh, more than a time or two. But usually there's some uh, talk in regards to the condition, regards, uh, talk in regards to the, the spiritual aspect and how that's important, and also in regards to the studies. If someone is, seems to be a little more resistant or we don't think that they may be a religious. And after that, I haven't had anyone uh, refuse to, uh, for me to pray uh, for them. I think I'm going to catch up after doing this about three times and go to the uh, next one. Religious commitment has an effect on specific health concerns. Uh, it protects against depression and suicide, substance abuse, cancer, and cardiovascular disease. Other researchers theorize that adherence to health-promoting behavior, such as abstaining from alcohol, red meat, and tobacco, could partially explain the lower incidence of disease that have been observed among members of conservative religious groups. And religious commitment can also give people greater peace, self-confidence, and purpose that could positively affect their health. And the investigators add that actively religious people may cope better with illness by relying on their beliefs. And of course, uh, uh, these are kind of in the, in the discussion aspect of the this study where they're theorizing in regards to why religious commitment does seem to positively affect health. The study goes on and concludes that physicians can help religious people by encouraging them to pray more, to meditate, to attend worship, to follow religiously based morning practices, to seek forgiveness from others, and read holy literature. In short, it would seem that many religious practices that patients find potentially meaningful might become resources for enhanced prevention, coping, and recovery. And so the uh, journal, or the archives of family medicine uh, state in a primary care journal very clearly uh, that the spiritual aspect and religion, uh, and particularly even particular religions, 
where it favored the more conservative type of religions definitely have a role to play in regards to the health of our patients. Now, as many of you know, I'm involved in depression recovery. In our depression recovery program, we get people from uh, all walks of life and some that are not religious. Most, I would say a good share of our patients that come to our depression recovery program haven't been to church in many years and have wondered and have actually doubted um, whether God um, has any role to play in their life. They think God has actually forgotten them or somehow neglected them. And of course, that's why they feel like uh, there is a depression. Uh, but this study from Duke that has done a lot of the uh, studies on religion and mental health shows that depressed patients with higher intrinsic religiosity scores have more rapid remissions than patients with lower scores. And it also uh, shows uh, patients recovered from depression 70% sooner with every 10-point increase in the religiosity assessment score. External religious activity had much less of an impact. External religious activity means like doing the rosary or even just formal church attendance. What I found uh, as practicing over 20 years in the Bible Belt is not everyone that goes to church actually has a belief system. Uh, Often they go there for business purposes and they'll be handing out their business card and letting them know about services that they can provide, etc. because it's a great meeting place. Uh, And uh, they might be going through the forms of religion but not actually allowing it uh, to affect their life. In our uh, depression recovery program, we show them what the PET scans look like. It's now well established, one of the main characteristics of virtually all depressed individuals, no matter what the underlying cause, is a significant decrease in the frontal lobe's blood flow and activity. This is an individual, and I probably don't have a laser pointer on here, and uh, although I might try the center, see if that'll work, it doesn't. But uh, those are the same patient six months apart. Uh, One, uh, obviously that patient was very depressed, and you can see how the metabolic activity of the brain is down uh, in many uh, areas. But the biggest before and after difference is there at the top, at the frontal lobe of the brain. And uh, we now know from research uh, that is done by uh, Drevitz and others that frontal lobe suppression occurs first and then the depression. And if we really want to get complete recovery from depression, we have to um, uh, actually reverse this and get frontal lobe circulation in place. So uh, our program, we're very overt about it, but because of this frontal lobe phenomena, uh, we tell them, and quote from secular neurology textbooks, that spirituality, morality, and the will is centered there in the prefrontal cortex of the frontal lobe of the brain, and if we really want to get complete healing, we have to increase this area of circulation. And so this is why we deal with, uh, uh, with uh, we have morning and evening worships and we have a spiritual connotation to the entire lifestyle program. Now I remember one individual who was an uh, atheist who came to our program and uh, she came up to me after the introduction to this the first night and seeing the PET scans and says, you know, I understand that you're gonna have a spiritual component of the program. 
Uh, we tell them this ahead of time, too, so it doesn't spring it on them. But I don't know if she missed that part or whatever, but she was a little concerned about this. And she said, um, uh, we also, for our depressed patients, unlike other lifestyle programs where we will have uh, everything kind of optional, for our depressed individuals, if you make it optional, um, they just won't show up. They'll just sleep all day or et cetera. And so they really won't be able to get on the correct treatment program. So uh, we are, we're knocking on their doors at six o'clock in the morning. We're getting them the light therapy, the exercise, all those sorts of things. And we, we recommend that they attend every presentation. And she says, I know what you recommended, but I'm an atheist and you're going to have worships in the morning and in the evening. Um, I'm just thinking, would it be okay in my case to skip that? And I just asked her a question. I said, well, how, how firm are you in your atheistic belief? And she says, very firm. I am, I am convinced. I don't think anyone's gonna convince me otherwise. I said, well, then you don't have anything to fear from attending <laughs> the, uh, the morning and evening worships. I said, you know, I go to, uh, to medical conventions where uh, people that are devout atheists are teaching things about thoughts like cognitive behavioral therapy. And just because they're devout atheists doesn't mean that I don't attend their talk. In fact, they'll even talk about their atheistic beliefs as part of, you know, the whole lecture uh, and bring that up. But there's still some truths that I can learn uh, from atheists. And what I would suggest that you do is go to those worships and see what you can find that you can resonate with and agree with and, and is truth to you and then take hold of it and run with that. And she says, okay, I think I can do that. And uh, at the end of the, um, of the program, uh, we have a final visit. And so I was going over her scores and she had significantly improved and we were getting ready for a discharge summary where we tell them the exact recommendations for their particular type of case and being able to get off the medicine as they continue to improve, et cetera. And then she just volunteered. I wasn't going to approach the subject uh, because I knew that she might have some resistance, but she volunteered and she says, you know, the three principles that you taught as part of this program, the spiritual component of the program, I agree with 100%. And uh, I'll, I'll introduce that, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, but I'll introduce those three principles uh, here in a moment, but I think it's intimately connected with Christ, patient restorer. Let's see if I can, uh, yes, Christ's three foundational principles that restore. And you know, one of, the, one of the concerns I have, sometimes I've attended some Christian medical conferences that are not amen conferences, but Christian medical conferences, where they talk about introducing Christ to the patient, et cetera, but Christ is often used almost in a superstitious manner. Uh, it's almost like a magical charm. And if we just get them to you know, acknowledge this sort of magical charm, then somehow that's going to be able to help things. But what I have found out is if we really want to get to know a person, we not only have to spend time with them, but we also need to know what is very important to them. 
And for us to really get to our patients to know Christ, I think it's very important that we get our patients to understand the principles, the ultimate principles that are important to Christ. Principle number one from the Bible, I am the way, the truth, and the life, Christ said. There is one thing the Bible says God can't do. Both the Old and New Testament says he cannot tell a lie. Truth is something that is of ultimate importance to Christ. In fact, Christ, it's very clear when Pilate was asking him the questions, why are you here when the crown of thorns is upon him? It's, it was very clear that Christ would have rather be eternally non-existent from that point forward than to sacrifice truth. Truth uh, is one of the ultimate three foundational principles. And with being in the medical profession, we have the opportunity every day in individual patient visits, or if you're a radiologist speaking to other physicians, or a pathologist, other physicians, we have the opportunity to explain truth to patients. And this, of course, is a tremendous blessing because they're often interested in hearing this truth. It's not just, you know, writing an article where you're not sure who's going to read it and what their background is, etc. You get to know some things about the background so you can really explain it in a nice way. But some of the truth, of course, is precious truth that we reveal to them. But also, often, it is our duty to reveal testing truths to the patient. And although it's our duty to reveal these testing truths, their response to those testing truths is kind of a screening test in regards to how the Spirit of God is working on their life. Let me explain uh, here a little bit between precious truth and testing truth. Let me see if I can go back again. Here's the precious truth. The Lord has given you a great, beautiful smile. And as the dentist is now working on the seventh carry in filling it, he has to reveal some testing truth. And that testing truth is if you quit candy, sodas, and sugar, your teeth would likely not have to have any more fillings. Now, uh, you can see the difference there, but you can also uh, uh, see that there is the opportunity on the patient's part. Although you are real sick, you are still alive, and with the Lord's help, you'll get better. That's the precious truth. The testing truth is if you are switched over to a plant-based diet, your atherosclerosis would stop progressing and your circulation would very likely improve. Another example, and sometimes we can be this overt, particularly with people that have depression and thinks that God has abandoned them, to just state the precious truth that Jesus loves you. With your lungs continuing to worsen, I know he wants you to quit smoking. Do you want to make that choice to quit once and for all? And if the answer to that question is yes, then you can press the testing truth a little further and say, if he really, if you think God wants you to quit, do you think it's also possible that God can give you 
the strength and the power to overcome? And if they say, yes, I think he can, then say, well, then the decision is yours. And if the decision is yours to quit, then let's get rid of all the cigarettes. Let's just throw these away, what do you think? Let's just go home and throw them all away and step out in faith. The opportunity for them to make that choice uh, in regards to the testing truth, and many people will do this. We call that the three-minute plan to stop smoking. Uh, and then you pray, of course, have a prayer with them in regards to uh, the Lord giving them the strength. If you step out in faith and follow God's plan for you, as Daniel did, and of course this is the opportunity when you're doing worship studies with them, we study the book of Daniel with our depression recovery participants. Every chapter starts out with a disappointment and ends with an appointment, but there's a spiritual key that gets it there. And just in chapter one, if you step out in faith and follow God's plan for you as Daniel did, God will pour more grace into your life as he did for Daniel. And so sometimes the precious truth and the present truth are combined. Truth is what moves a patient from unconscious incompetence to conscience, conscious incompetence. Those are the first two stages of change. The first stage that people in are, are usually unconscious incompetence. They're ignorant that their lifestyle, and they're really ignorant that their lack of Christ is adversely affecting their life. But as you start revealing truth to them, they start realizing that their lifestyle is bad. And of course the problem, a lot of people I've run across doctors that say, you know, I don't want to tell him that because he's going to think it's too hard and he's not going to do it anyway. You know, that's a pretty paternalistic attitude. There's a, there's a lot more patients interested in following a better lifestyle than many doctors might believe. Uh, and they just need to know a better way. Uh, and often they're, they're willing uh, to follow it. But uh, we first have to move them to conscious incompetence, and that requires truth. They're not gonna move further if they're not given truth and accurate knowledge. And truth opens the way for the Holy Spirit to do his work. The first thing that the Holy Spirit does when he comes, according to Christ, Christ said when the Holy Spirit comes, the first thing the Holy Spirit will do, and by the way, the Holy Spirit is called the Spirit of Truth. First thing he does is to what? Now, what is a convict? A convict is someone who is declared guilty. So the first thing the Holy Spirit does is when we reveal truth, when the Spirit's there, that person is going to feel guilty. And by the way, pop psychology says all guilt is bad. Not true. Appropriate guilt is good if it leads to change. And that's the, uh, the Holy Spirit, of course, is our change agent, that spirit that, of course, comes from God uh, in Christ. Some might ask, but not all truth comes from Christ, does it? I've actually been criticized in some of my writings in Proof Positive and also Depression the Way Out and even in our DVD program, uh, not by a lot, uh, I actually thought I'd get a lot more criticism than I did in writing those works, so uh, I'm grateful that the criticism has been rather minimal. But it, uh, some of the criticism has come from very uh, faithful, Bible-believing individuals who are upset over the fact that I quote 
people who are not Christian, such as maybe Dean Ornish, uh, or other types of, um, uh, you know, even uh, Dr. Beck or Ellis in the cognitive behavioral therapy line, uh, et cetera, uh, because I'm quoting uh, truth from people that obviously don't have an active faith in Christ. Ellen White quotes on this in the book Education. She says, as the moon and the stars of our solar system shine by the reflected light of the sun, so as far as their teaching is true, do the world's great thinkers reflect the rays of the sun of righteousness. Every gleam of thought, every flash of intellect is from where? The light of the world. So actually, all truth comes from God. They're just, they've revealed expressions of truth in their study, but they've actually revealed aspects of the character of God. Whatever line of investigation we pursue, with a sincere purpose to arrive at truth, we are brought in touch with the unseen mighty intelligence that is working in and through all. The mind of man is brought into communion with the mind of God, the finite with the infinite. The effect of such communion on body, mind, and soul, she says, is beyond estimate. And so don't underestimate those individual patient visits where you have the opportunity to reveal truth to the individual. That's education 13 and 14. And of course, there's truth that affects your health, as I mentioned earlier. It's dependent on two things, what you put into your body and what you do with your body. And interestingly, the Bible states this in 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether therefore ye eat or drink, or whatsoever ye do, Paul says what? Do all to the glory of God. In other words, God is interested in what we're eating, what we're drinking, and what we're doing, and he's very interested also in what your patients are eating, drinking, and doing. And if they don't learn a better way from you, where are they going to learn it from? Often you're going to be the only avenue for that. Well, that brings us to Christ's second foundational principle that restores, and that is the principle of freedom. Once truth is revealed, the individual isn't going to go further unless they are introduced to the second foundational principle, and that is freedom. Freedom is what allows people to move from stage two of the stages of change, conscious incompetence, to stage three, conscious competence. And a lot of people, when they're first revealed truth, don't really recognize that they are free to make a choice for the better. I've had it particularly with addictive habits, you know, such as smoking, drinking, et cetera. They'll think, you know, if I were to actually give this up, my life would be much more miserable than it is. In my case, I need this in order for me to not just, you know, totally go off the deep end. Uh, but they uh, often don't realize that they are indeed enslaved by their habit. The freedom to choose is something that Christ also died for. If he didn't give us freedom, there would have never been sin and there would have been no need for him to ever die. And so that freedom of choice is one of those foundational principles of the government of God. Now, God's choices are all about freedom. He gave, how many, he gave many trees in the Garden of Eden. These you may freely eat of, 
None of them had addictive fruit as part of them. But the devil tempts people to exercise their God-given freedom to make his choices. And the difference is, let's see if we can go back, please. Someone's trying to help me out back there, which is good. The difference is that his choices enslave. People will first feel better. Their dopamine levels and norepinephrine levels will go up, but as they repeat it, it just goes up to neutral. And in between times, those levels are at a deep level, distressing sense of deprivation when there's nothing sad going on in their life. That is what you call slavery. And as a result, people have to continue the, the enslaved habit to get back up to neutral. The Bible says, because sentence against an evil work is not executed speedily, therefore the hearts of the sons of men is fully set in them to do evil. What is that saying? It's saying because there's no immediate adverse consequences to bad choices, these choices are thought to be harmless. And pretty soon they enslave and the effects of those choices start to catch up with people and their unhappiness level goes way up as a result of those choices. The Bible also says by the writer of Proverbs, his own iniquities entrap the wicked man and he is caught in the cords of his sin. Whenever you are caught in the cords of an addictive lifestyle, there's no way you're gonna get free from that unless Christ is influencing your life. And of course, many people don't realize the influence of the divine uh, on their life. This is one of the important parts of Romans. Romans chapter seven states this, for the good that I would, I do not, but the evil which I would not, that I do. Paul is describing a person that has, been that has been exposed to truth and actually has a little bit of love of the truth, recognizes the truth could benefit them, but is not applying the truth in their life consistently. And as a result, they're actually enslaved. This is, this is you know, what is a slave when you get down to it? A slave is someone that has to do things that they don't want to do, or doesn't do things um, that they really want to do, etc. Now, if I do that, I would not. It is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that what, when I would do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. In my study of Romans and the rest of Paul, Paul talks about this inward man. You know what he's actually talking about there? We could just substitute it almost every time, the frontal lobe of the brain. You know, the frontal lobe knows what's best, uh, particularly when we're exposed to truth. So I delight in the law of God after the inward man. The frontal lobe knows this would be best. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin, which is in my members. And then he exclaims, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This wretched man that's described in Romans 7, much of so-called Christianity claims that this is and will be the condition of every saved Christian. These Christians use Christ as a superstition. 
Just acknowledge Christ as your Savior, and somehow through magic, things will turn out better for you. But it sets people up for major discouragement. In essence, they're saying, don't worry if you feel wretched or live a wretched life. You're saved anyway. Their proof is, is Paul's allegory in Romans 7. And unfortunately, they haven't really read deeply the next chapter of Romans chapter 8. By the way, that word wretched is only used two times in the New Testament. Once in Romans chapter 7, and the other time is the message to the last church in Laodicea. Revelation 3.17 says, Because thou sayest, I have need of nothing, and knowest not that thou art wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. What does the word naked mean? No clothes. And that means you're not clothed with the righteousness of Christ. And an individual that wasn't clothed with the righteousness of Christ in Christ's parable was cast into outer darkness. This wretched man is not a saved man. This wretched man is the condition of a lost man. And before you have the assurance of salvation, you must first have the assurance of damnation. Romans chapter 8 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. And a lot of Christians just stop that whole Romans 7 allegory with that phrase only. They don't even go on to the rest of the verse. But the rest of the verse says, Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me, what? Free from the law of sin and death. And so once Christ is fully in the life, you have that freedom, and you're no longer a slave. And you can actually do what your frontal lobe says would be best for you to do, and not do what your frontal lobe says would not be best to do. I wish we had time to go into the rest of Romans 8, because, you know, as a, as a pilot, verse 1, you're just going down the runway. Verse 2, that freedom, that's when you're starting to get lift. But the, if you read it verse by verse, you're gaining altitude. I mean, you're just going up and up, and it's, it's a wonderful experience uh, that our patients yearn for and desire uh, in their walk. But at the end of Romans 8, we're introduced to the third foundational principle that restores. And this is when we're really gaining a lot of speed and altitude, and that third foundational principle is love. Not just any love, but agape, altruistic, self-sacrificing, empathetic love. This has also actually been studied by Prochaska, the attribute in the caregiver that most likely brings about positive change in their patient is empathetic love. Once they realize that you understand them, that you understand their condition, that you have empathy for them, that you desire something better for them, and they sense that, they're actually far more likely to change than if they're just revealed the cold facts of truth. And that's why those individual patient visits are so important, where they can sense that empathetic love. 
The Bible says God is love. Not just that he loves, which could almost be said of any creature, depending on which love you're talking about. But God is love in that self-sacrificing way. It is who he is. He wants us to experience his love. But many people don't understand self-sacrificing love is not something we experience naturally as human beings in our fallen state. It's why we need that experience of Romans chapter 8. It has to come from outside of us. Just like all truth from, comes from God and really is outside of us, and just like that freedom has to come from outside of us, so that love comes from God as revealed through Christ himself. And that's the basic difference between Christianity and these other religions, uh, where many of these other religions just talk about the good that is within, and we just have to somehow uh, nature and nurture the good that is within. Uh, we need to recognize that good comes from outside of us. Love takes us all the way through the stages of change, including from conscious competence to unconscious competence. And when you're unconsciously competent, this is when you start to experience what the psalmist says, that will show me the path of life. In thy presence is fullness of joy. At thy right hand there are pleasures forevermore. This is the experience that our patients can have by being introduced to Christ the Restorer. And then, of course, we know that Christ came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. That's what he's talking about in regards to restoring. Now, to look at the opposite side of these principles sometimes is helpful. Uh, Christ's foundational principle, the first principle is what? Truth. What is the opposite of truth? The opposite of truth is not just a lie. It's a lie that's believed. And that means a deception. And the problem with many of our patients, and also in ourselves, is that we have actually believed lies, and those lies have hurt us. Uh, the Bible says, my people are destroyed for lack of knowledge. And of course, it's not just lack of knowledge, but we've actually been incorporating knowledge that is deceptive knowledge, that is lies, that have caused a whole lot of problems. The opposite of freedom is slavery. What about the opposite of love? It's not hate. God is love, but it says God actually hates in the Bible. If it was the opposite, it would be impossible. The opposite is pride or selfishness. And that's why it says if God hates one sin above another, it is the sin of pride, the sin of selfishness. And so our patients need to see that love of Christ that also comes with humility, even though we're in a position that is sometimes thought of as a superior position. A few quotes in closing uh, at the pen of, uh, of Ellen White. Those who are willing to inform themselves concerning the effect of sinful indulgence upon the health and who commence the work of reform, even if it be from selfish motives, in so doing place themselves where the truth of God may find access to their hearts. So even though your patients may be there for selfish motives, they will place themselves 
where they can find, where God can find access. And on the other hand, those who are reached by the presentation of scripture truth are then in a position where their consciences will be aroused upon the subject of health. If you've run across people that are impressed by quote scripture truth but make, make no advancement in their health, it's actually a sign that that's the superstitious Christianity, that's the false gospel that actually gives them the assurance of salvation but it will bring about actually damnation. And of course that's very dangerous to think that you're in a saving relationship but you're not. If you are in that saving relationship when you're exposed to truth, you're going to have the freedom to move forward and accept that truth. And then some say, well, aren't there people that make positive changes without God? She says, if one step could be taken without Christ, every step in the way of salvation might be taken without him. It is true that great reformations and outward conduct are often made where there is no express faith in Christ. Many have not even a knowledge of Jesus, but it is a divine influence that makes man capable of any change and leads him to reformation. And she says, once you see individuals going out and stepping forward and making positive changes in their life, it's a sure sign the Holy Spirit is working on their life. And she says, you need to get closer to them because they're going to be interested in more light. And so when you see those changes, don't just pat them on the back and, don't and, and not expose to, to them to more light. These are individuals that the Holy Spirit wants to lead all the way to be a full follower of Christ. That's why it's so exciting to be involved in caring for patients. And I've been asked by two famous evangelists in my past, one many years ago and one more recently, to give up the practice of medicine and just go into the lecture circuit. One asked me for, uh, to become an evangelist uh, many, uh, years, or many years ago, and then one more recently said, just be a health evangelist. Think you know, on the media and those type of things, you can reach uh, thousands of people where in a patient interview, you're just meeting one patient. But it is exciting to be involved in the caring for patients because you have the opportunity to exhibit all three of those things. And what a bonus to actually get paid for it. You know, it's kind of interesting in the pastoral side of things, uh, they wish that people would be interested in truth. You have people that are interested in truth right there in front of you. And you actually have the opportunity to give them a Bible study and introduce them to Christ and they actually write you a check for it uh, at the end of the visit. Uh, it is, uh, it's pretty amazing. And of course you can actually put that check right back into the work of the ministry for those who don't get paid um, for, uh, for doing the ministry. But uh, she says the work of Christ was largely made up of personal interviews. He had a faithful regard for what? The one soul audience. From that one soul, the intelligence received was carried to thousands. And by the way, even our quote, for God so what? Loved the world that he gave. He said that to one person in a one soul audience. And that was carried to us. Second Corinthians chapter five, Paul says, for the love of Christ constraineth us, because we thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. What is Paul saying here? He's looking upon humanity, these souls that he's meeting on the street or that are just passing them on the street and he's recognizing that without Christ, they're as good as dead. 
But because that love of Christ was in him, it constrained him to reach those souls and to do everything possible. And of course, that means when we have that desire, we're going to be part of the 4S club of Christ's love. And those 4S's are surrender, selflessness, sacrifice, and service. She says, the physician who understands the responsibility and accountability of his position will feel the necessity of Christ's presence with him in his work for those for whom such a sacrifice has been made. He will subordinate everything to the higher interests which concern the life that might be saved unto life eternal. And this is why it's good to attend conferences such as this. I recognize that sometimes when I walk into the hospital room, I'm just thinking about the pneumonia or I'm thinking about the congestive heart failure, or the renal failure, or the liver failure. But it says, the work and responsibility of, of the physician is subordinate everything to the higher interests which concern the life that may be saved unto life eternal. They're in a position where they have that opportunity to be presented with precious and testing truths and to step forward in that saving relationship. He will, meaning the physician or dentist, he will do all in his power to save both the body and the soul. He will try to do the very work that Christ would do were he in his place. The physician who loves Christ and the souls for whom Christ died will seek earnestly to bring into the sick room a leaf from the tree of life. He will try to break the bread of life to the sufferer. Notwithstanding the obstacles and difficulties to be met, she says, this is the solemn, sacred work of the medical profession. She says it's not necessarily gonna be easy every time. There will be obstacles and difficulties, but that is the solemn, sacred work of the medical profession. And then this text, and I will very gladly spend and be spent for you. We need to continue to have that in regards to our patients. Although, Paul said this, See if I can find it. Though the more abundantly I love you, the less I be loved. In other words, sometimes when we do this on behalf of our patients, there are going to be times when we're loved less, just as Christ was when he gave everything. But yet, it is a work that will produce a joy that cannot be compared to anything else. Christ, patient restorer. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. We cannot really know Christ until we know what is of utmost importance to him. And these three principles are of utmost importance. Many desire to have the assurance of Christ without really spending time with him to really know him and what is precious to him. But it's clear that those three things he, he would have sacrificed his own eternal existence over. My final text is that of Ephesians. And this I have seen in patient after patient who has taken hold of that message of Christ and changed their lifestyle for the better and then allowed Christ to actually dwell within them and have that freedom and that love and that truth. Ephesians says, to know the love of Christ, which patheth knowledge, which ye might be filled with all the fullness of God, now unto him that is able to do exceeding abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that worketh in us. We pray for the patient's particular disease and that he changes lifestyle for the better, but when that happens, 
things start occurring in their life that's far above whatever they were anticipating in regards to that patient, that particular patient visitor being healed from that disease. And when we take hold of Christ being the patient restorer in the fullest sense, we will see those looks of joy and wonderment in regards to how their life has changed and how far better, exceedingly abundantly above whatever they asked or think. That's what Christ is capable of doing for each of our patients. And that's what he's capable of doing for us. If we step out and fully embrace his three principles. Let's bow our heads. Father in heaven, we've just touched the surface of these three principles. We could spend a whole month on each one of these principles and still not expound to all that there is. They're infinite principles, but we know, Lord, that they are precious to you. You actually value them above your own existence. And Lord, I pray that each individual in this room would recognize the power that there is in, in your principles and that we might, through every patient visit, be able to present precious truth, present testing truth, to be able to open the doorway of freedom to a new life and to be able to exemplify your love. We thank you for such love, that you are willing to die, that we might be saved. And not just saved for life eternal, but to live a far more abundant life here. Thank you for hearing and answering this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for Amen, Adventist Medical Evangelism Network. If you would like to learn more about Amen, please visit www. AmenSDA.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.